You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is a social entrepreneur and attorney who focuses on startup companies, nonprofit organizations, and arts and entertainment law issues. Creative Confidential starts now. today is a Seattle-based singer and songwriter and band leader. I'm very fortunate today to be joined by the great Paula Boggs. Paula, thanks for joining us today. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. It's so great to be with you. We um, were, you know, we have a lot of listeners now by virtue of this being, you know, we're not tied to any city like we were would be if we had a radio, if this was a radio show. Um, and we've got you know, listeners basically all over the country now. Um, so it's, but it's great to have uh, you joining us from from Seattle. Uh, we we appreciate you uh, taking some time out. I know you've got about a thousand things to do today. Um, so I did. I have not set up anything yet on uh, how you got into what you're doing now. Um, we didn't promote a lot of this in advance uh, like we normally would because I think it's such an interesting twist uh, for, for people to hear and discover. So um, let's talk a minute about the Paula Boggs band and and then we're going to rewind quite a ways back maybe to you know, your college days and, and sort of walk forward to, uh, to how you got to where you are today. But uh, tell us a little bit about the band and, and uh, when you formed it. Happy to do it, Brian. Paula Boggs band in some form or another has been in place since uh, 2007. So nine years now, we had our first gig in January of 08 uh, at the Triple Door here in Seattle. And um, there's, there's six members of the band. We call our sound soul grass which is really a fusion of a lot of different genres blues jazz rock folk uh world even and depending on the song it will lean uh to one or another a little bit of bluegrass gospel i guess in it 
two from time to time. Four of the six members uh, we've played together for the entire nine year period. Uh, the percussionist Tor Diedrichsen uh, was the first, I guess, member of the band in that he and I started jamming together back in uh, 06. Uh, the banjo uh, lead guitarist, Mark Shannon, um, is an original member, um, as is the drummer, uh, Sandy Greenbaum, who is also our music director. Um, we also have a multi-instrumentalist, uh, Tim Conway, who plays everything from keyboards to accordion to trumpet to melodica. <laughs> and, uh, and then finally, um, we're in transition with our bass player, Jarrett Mason, played with us for, for three years. And uh, we now have a new bass player, uh, Alex Deering. Well, and we heard coming into the interview, uh, the listeners heard an excerpt uh, from a song you wrote called Miss Ruby Kirby Blues, uh, which, yes. <laughs> you know, and all of those influences you've described uh, are there. You know, sometimes you hear interviews with musicians and they, they will, they'll say, well, it's a little bit of everything. And, and then when you get to the core of it, it's definitely a blues group or it's definitely a, uh, you know, R&B group. But when I listen to your stuff, there are, you know, there are different things that peak out. Uh, you know, there's, it, you know, there's like this very uh, prevalent strain of kind of like what I would call Americana or, or you know, or rootsy, you know, because you'll hear banjos and other um, kind of guitar variants in in the group that you don't normally hear outside of like country or, or bluegrass. But at the same time, there's there's a very solid blues foundation. You know, you, I think, you, you know, there's the at least the tracks that I've heard, uh, there's a very strong upright bass um, yes. com component to it that changes the shape of you know, the overall, uh, of the overall sound. Um, Absolutely. So it's all, it, it is all in there. And, uh, and we'll, we'll listen to another track, uh, at the, at the end of the interview, uh, called Carnival of Miracles that we'll, we'll kind of get into in a, in a minute. Um, now, now that we've kind of set the table, uh, for, for what you're doing now, um, you know, it's not so for regular listeners of the podcast, um, you know, they know that we like to explore what road, you know, the guest has walked, you know, how did they get to where they are from, you know, from the past to, to the present day? Um, you know, your, your story from your professional background really grabbed me and I, you know, sent you a note probably within a couple of minutes of, of reading, um, was I think it was in was it in the Huffington Post or was it in Yes, the Huffington Post, absolutely. Um, so we'll we'll we can and we'll uh, there's a link to that story uh, on the on the web on the podcast website. So go to creativeconfidential.net, click on episodes, you'll see Paula's episode up, and we'll we'll have a link to that Huff Post story. But uh, it's it was it was pretty interesting. Um, Let's let's go back to undergrad, and, sure. And perhaps talk about uh, you know it seems to me like the military was the first uh, 
how about I you tell the story and I'll sit back because you're going to tell it much better than uh, <laughs> that I can lead you through it for sure. Yeah. Well, let, let me give uh, your listeners the the Reader's Digest version of, of Paula Voggs. Um, your listeners may be interested to know, I, I actually started playing the guitar and writing music at age 10. Um, as a, a as a young teen, um, my my mom, who was an educator, my dad too, actually, uh, my mom left the United States with her four kids, me being the oldest, and we moved to Europe. And that move for me was many things, but it it truly um, enriched uh, my appreciation uh, for music and the diversity of music, uh, but it was also my introduction to uh, the military. I really didn't know very much about the military before we moved to Europe, but my mom taught the children of military personnel. So uh, as I graduated from high school, um, having um, the military pay for my college education was uh, something that I sought, and it happened for me. And so, uh, um, upon graduation from high school, um, I returned to the U.S., um, attended Johns Hopkins University on a four-year Army ROTC scholarship. Uh, and then uh, from there, I went to law school uh, at UC Berkeley and then had four years to pay back um, the Army, uh, which is what I did. So um, I, I did four years of active duty in the Army in Washington, D.C., uh, at the Pentagon and the White House. Uh, and then I moved to Seattle and uh, began to pursue uh, a, a career in law that uh, culminated in uh, me serving 10 years as Starbucks uh, general counsel, Starbucks uh, chief lawyer. Uh, and at the end of uh, 10 years, I said, uh, you know, this has been a great career uh, and I'm ready to do something else. I'm ready to climb another mountain. And so I left Starbucks and my law career uh, to um, return to music uh, full time and uh, and be lead lead singer uh, chief st- songwriter for uh, the Paula Vogts band. When did musical performance start for you? Were you were you a performer as a kid or? I was um, and and certainly not in any way at the scale uh, we now do it. Uh, but, you know, in the age of, of Facebook, uh, I've actually had a chance to reconnect with some of the folks I knew uh, in high school. I, I attended three different high schools in five years in, in Europe, two in, in Germany and, and one in Italy. And those people I've reconnected with recall me you know, playing for their high school graduations and whatnot. So um, as a freshman 
in high school, uh, I I played Bob Dylan's "The Times They Are a Changing" for the graduation of that senior class, and uh, and then in an entirely different uh, school and country in Vicenza, um, when I was in tenth grade, I played the graduation song uh, "Seals and Croft." Uh, we may never pass this way again. So, you know, I had a bit of a reputation in high school uh, for being, you know, a singer, songwriter, and performer. Uh, and while in college, I would do the uh, occasional open mic. There was a coffee house not that far from campus called um, Our Father's Place. And I would play uh, original music there um, from time to time. And even in law school um, at UC Berkeley, um, I, I would play um, from time to time. And uh, the thing with, with Berkeley, actually, um, I, was, uh, I was still, no longer am, but I was at the time still Catholic. And they had um, a Newman Center, and I would play uh, folk mass. And so that was the performance outlet uh, for me, uh, primarily uh, while in law school. So you have, you know, I don't want to gloss over anything because all of these details are are so great. Um, You know, the person that gets to perform at the local high school graduation tends to be the best player or, or regarded as the best player performer sort of in that school or in that region. That's a big, you know, that's a big honor. It's like, you know, performing yeah. at somebody's wedding or something like that. Um, like during the, I mean, during the actual ceremony and right. It, well, cause everybody's going to remember, I would hope, you know, people always uh, <laughs> look back on that fondly. Um, and you know, you go to Johns Hopkins. Um, I'm curious about the decision. How did you end up at Berkeley on the other side of the country? What was the motivation to go to California from coming out of Johns Hopkins? Well, you know, that's, that's a, that's a great story. Uh, I, I really was motivated by a, a desire, a passion to have a different cultural experience uh, for for law school than uh, for my undergraduate education. You know, Johns Hopkins is, you know, very much, um, you know, a creature of where it sits. It's, uh, you know, it's on the East Coast. Uh, it's very, um, it's it's a it's a very um, difficult school academically, but it's also, um, at least back then you know, had, you know, many of the trappings of any elite East Coast uh, institution of higher learning. And I, 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 I like that. I, um, I thrived in that environment. But I, I also, at the end of four years, felt, you know, I knew it and wanted something different. And there was an allure about Berkeley. I'd never visited Berkeley uh, before uh, moving there uh, to start law school, but there's a mystique 
uh, about Berkeley and, you know, the, the storyline around what Berkeley is was very different from what I knew uh, Johns Hopkins to be. And in fact, when I told my professor of military science at Johns Hopkins that I had gotten accepted into Berkeley and planned to go there, he literally clutched his heart. <laughs> he said, <laughs> Berkeley, Berkeley, yeah. four years of military education down the tube. I mean, it really is 180. <laughs> it really is a 180 degree um, <laughs> move, it seems. I mean, but um, and I, I that didn't mean to get us off and off into the weeds on that discussion. But I <laughs> as soon as you said, you know, Hopkins and Berkeley, I'm like, hold on a second. That because the. People that go to law school tend to be, uh, at least in my experience, tend to be very risk averse. And the idea of being predisposed to to wanting to go into law school, number one, um, I have a hard time imagining anybody I know in my you know my experience that would would say, you know what, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to go you know other side of the country. Uh, to a place that's, you know, ideologically probably very different. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and just take myself completely out of, of the space that I'm in. And that's, ex- that's exactly what I did, Brian. And I got to tell you, it was the best decision in my life. I mean, the, the law school at Berkeley is, is great. Certainly. But for me, the the Berkeley experience was far bigger than that. I was uh, exposed to a diversity of, of people and their their stories in in ways that honestly, I have failed to replicate Um um, in the rest of my life. I mean, I was a Nautilus instructor <laughs> uh, during my time at Berkeley. That was one of the ways I earned money. So mm-hmm. I, was, I was teaching people at the local Y, you know, how to use what was then new, uh, these new machines for weightlifting. And by so doing, I met people who were, you know, ex-boxers, bus drivers, waitresses. I mean, just a whole swath of um, humanity that used the why. And many of those those people became my friends. And I, I learned so much about myself and about living and life by by being uh, in Berkeley, California for those three years. Following graduation, now we're kind of moving moving forward a little bit. What was your first what was your first legal job out of out of Berkeley? So my first legal job out of Berkeley was uh, returning to the East Coast to uh, the Pentagon. The Army has uh, an honors program um, in the 
um, Army General Counsel's office. So the Army General Counsel is the Army's top civilian lawyer. Uh, and each year they bring what they call, the Army calls, obligated, quote, obligated officers, close quote, which is what I was. I owed mm-hmm. the Army uh, four years um, into uh, the Pentagon, into the Army General Counsel's office. So I was accepted into that program and uh, went uh, went directly to um, the Pentagon and spent two and a half years actually doing a variety of things. I didn't stay in the Army General Counsel's office. I did a couple of other jobs uh, before being uh, selected to uh, do a, a stint at the White House, which is what I did. Now, specifically at the White House, what were what were your duties? What were you doing there? Sure. So um, it was a a time of uh, crisis uh, for uh, the country. I um, I left the Pentagon to join um, the White House Iran Contra uh, Legal Task Force uh, uh, out of the White House Counsel's Office during. Uh, the time of the Iran-Contra crisis. So, uh, as a military officer, I was I was actually in the um, in the business of uh, defending uh, the office of the President of the United States, and so that was my job for um, for eighteen months. And upon uh, finishing my my four year military commitment, uh, I moved to Seattle. So you weren't you weren't prepping Oliver North for his congressional testimony or anything like that, or well, Ollie North was fired <laughs> matter, by that time. As a matter <laughs> of know, fact, so I w- you know it's it's you know it's really you know I know you want to go other places, but you know this is pre-internet. Yeah, um, and yeah, it was so, a different world back then. Yeah, and so it was a very different world, and so one of the things we would do. Uh, We'd watch the hearings on um, on TV, the congressional hearings, mm-hmm. and then um, you know prepare a response, um, anticipating uh, what you know the Washington Post and other national papers would say about that day. Uh, and in fact, you know this is ridiculous in, in today's age, but back then. The first edition of the Washington Post would come out at something like, you know, midnight or 2 a.m. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it was our job. Part of our job was to, you know, know that back and front and and help with a legal response to whatever, um, you know, had happened in uh, the hearing the day before and the reportage of what had happened the day before. <laughs> There's a book in there. You have, you have about three or four <laughs> books that you could write just based on just what we've talked. We haven't even gotten to the music part yet. This is the crazy thing. Um, so we, for, you know, so from the White House, um, you were there for, for how long? I was there 18 months. And was that was that the end of your your government service, or did you did it, did it continue after that point? It was the end of my military service, but um, I I was actually um, an assistant U.S. attorney, uh, federal prosecutor for 
five years following uh, my military service. So I moved uh, to Seattle and joined uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office um, here in Seattle. Gotcha. Now, what what set were you financial crimes or what were you doing? Yes. What's, what's well, you know, it's it's I started with um, because I I was the first um, person in the history of the U.S. Attorney's Office to be hired with zero trial experience, and you know it was a, it was a classic example of being a beneficiary of mentoring because um, the guy I worked for in the White House was such a believer in me that he persuaded uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office to hire me, even though um, I had no trial experience. And so for the first year or so, I was doing um, what are called um, major crimes. So er er anything from bank robberies to, um, you know, firearms, um, fe uh, felony firearms violations, uh, and the like. And then um, after doing that for um, a year or so, I started doing uh, more white collar crime, uh, prosecution, money laundering, fraud, and that sort of thing. Now, for those of, of, of us or, or listeners who are not, you know, haven't been around the legal profession at all or, or may not be familiar, um, you know, obtaining a job in in the U.S. Attorney's Office as a prosecutor is a highly coveted job within the legal profession. I mean, the, the competition uh, to land one of those jobs is ferocious. It, it really is, um, because I think people perceive, and rightly so, I think from what we're about to talk about next, you know, once you... You know, once you work in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you're you can pretty much. I don't want to say you know you, you write your own ticket, but it really opens doors to you later on that would not otherwise uh, be open. Um, so you transitioned out of at some point you transitioned out of the U.S. Attorney's Office into. Did you go directly in how as an in-house counsel after that point? No, I, I didn't. I actually, um, I, I had one more opportunity uh, to to serve my country full time. I, I went back to D.C. for a year. Uh, this time it was to work on um, an investigation arising out of the, the tail hook uh, scandal uh, back, you know, in the early 90s. Um, naval, uh, uh, male naval uh, officers uh, had engaged in uh, sexual misconduct uh, against um, Navy women uh, at a uh, Navy function. Uh, and so that spawned um, a number of investigations. And I came back to D.C. from Seattle for a year to um, to to serve um as staff director for one of the bodies Congress created to investigate that scandal. Um, and then I went back to Seattle, um, joined a big law firm, uh, did that for a couple years uh, before going uh, in-house uh, at Dell Computer Corporation. Now, with 
all that's going on in, in this block of time that we're, we're talking about, m- you know, musical performance, is there any space in your life for it at this point? Zero. Yeah, I was going to say, I, <laughs> I mean, had, <laughs> there's no way I Zero. can't imagine. Yeah. Um, so you had to, and, and that's not uncommon. I mean, the, some of the guests that we've had on previously who are not lifelong performers, you know, at, at some point in their journey, you know, they ha- they put their art side away for some period of time while they're concentrating on other matters, whether it's career, family, or, you know, whatever, uh, whatever other things that they were focusing on. Absolutely. And uh, that was me. Well, I can't imagine. I mean, all of these jobs are all consuming. The U.S. Attorney's Office, the congressional investigation. I mean, you're you're probably involved in it 18 hours a day. I would think. Yes, totally. It's it's very um, absorbing physically, emotionally, men, You know, in any any way you define it, it's consuming. <laughs> so, from the time that you're at Dell Computer as in-house counsel, what happens next? Yes, yeah, so um, I um, I was at Dell for for five years, and you know I my my ambition, my aspiration at the time was to become a general counsel of a Fortune 500 company. That's you know so my my spouse and I had left uh, Seattle, moved to Austin, Texas, and. Uh, to become the number two lawyer uh, at at Dell, and that was my ambition. And so, five years into it, um, and it was an amazing five years at Dell. But I didn't think I would be able to achieve uh, that that goal at Dell. Uh, and so, um, I I talked to you know headhunters and that sort of thing. Um, and it was in this period um, I learned uh, Starbucks, uh, the Starbucks General Counsel had retired. Uh, and so that was um, what, I'll, what I'll call a twofer in, in the sense that uh, there was an opening at a company I admired um, and also a company that was in the city I loved, and so I went for it, and Starbucks chose me. Uh, and so, in in uh, 2002, uh, we we moved back uh, to to Seattle, and I began my my journey as as Starbucks top lawyer. The and at this point, you know, in the legal profession. This is, I think, the analogy I would make. You know, if we were we were going to make a, a sports analogy, you know, this is like being, you know, if not the general manager of a major league baseball team, you're probably the assistant general manager. You're you're very very near the top of the organization, and from general counsel, there's nowhere to go to. Like maybe become CEO <laughs> of the company. Right. I mean, that's yeah. That you're you're absolutely right. And you know, for a for a lawyer, um, there's there's really no higher place uh, to go um, once you've achieved uh, 
achieve that goal. And and quite often, you know, people that do get the general counsel position at a, at a company of Starbucks caliber, um, they're in they're in that spot as long as you know they can hang on. You know, whether it's until mm-hmm. retirement or you know um, time, you know, maybe time for a less intense you know experience or something like that. But uh, that's. You know, it, I, I don't mean to hit this over and over again, but, you know, again, like being the general counsel of a – and not a Fortune 500, but Starbucks is what, a Fortune 100 company or close it, to – It really is, and its its brand is even larger than its revenues. And, and by that, I mean, uh, you know, there are bigger – companies uh than than starbucks certainly but in terms of you know global brand recognition there are very few companies that have you know a bigger footprint Mm -hmm. uh than than starbucks does agreed um and so we're you're you're now in the general counsel's office and we don't want to gloss over that, but we, we do want to talk about what you're doing today. <laughs> Absolutely. To, to I do up. too. <laughs> um, so, so let's, so m- maybe we can leave that for another conversation later on, but uh, eventually you reach a point where you decide it's time to move on. Yes. And the, the plan was to do what go to, to do music full time or how did, how did that decision get made? Yes, you know, to be perfectly honest, Brian, when I had the conversation with Howard Schultz signaling uh, my my desire to to retire from Starbucks, some things were clear to me and others really weren't. Um, I I knew that I wanted to um, be deeper. In, in music. And so the immediate uh, outlet for that was doing more with Paula Boggs Band, but I, I wasn't fully clear at the time what that would mean. I, I also wanted um, in the immediate uh, time frame to uh, volunteer for Barack Obama's reelection. And so th- the timing of me leaving Starbucks was was also tied to that because I I wanted a sufficient runway, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, to hopefully make some some difference in that in that goal. So really for me there was the there was the decision to do something very different or different things than I was doing because I felt a huge sense of completion uh, after 10 years at Starbucks. Very proud of that time, but it felt done uh, in a sense of, um, of adventure and need to do something very, very different from what I had been doing and that music needed to be a part of 
that. And really, it was it was not until after the um, Obama reelection that I I really understood in myself the right answer for me was was not to you know work for the administration or do something you know in that realm, but rather to to really double down and uh, commit uh, consistent with my heart uh, to to music. And so uh, the band really, um, you know, became something, you know, it had not been up to that point, which was, uh, for many of us, a more full-time endeavor. And we began to, you know, prepare um, very, very intensely for the recording of our second record, which we started in 2013, um, redid in large measure in, in 2014, uh, released uh, last, last year. Uh, and since then, um, we've, we've been touring uh, and, you know, doing, um, you know, everything we can consistent with the commitment we all feel uh, to, to Paula Boggs band. And the the album you're referring to is Carnival of Miracles. Yes, it is Carnival okay. of Miracles. And let's start plugging some things because that's what we want to do. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> you can and now everything's. Let's uh, we will link to your band's website uh, on 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 the podcast page, but you can also download Carnival of Miracles. I'm assuming on Bandcamp and on iTunes and any online outlet. Yes, you can. You can certainly. Um, you can get it on on SoundCloud, iTunes, Amazon, uh, CD Baby. There, are, you know, a lot of different ways to get it on on our website, um, PaulaBogsBand.net. Now, did you? Now, do you have songwriting partners, or did you did you write all the material yourself, or how how does the material come together? Yes. Um, on, on Carnival of Miracles, uh, I, I wrote um, all, of, all of the songs um, except for uh, our cover of Neil Young's uh, When You Dance, I Can Really Love. Uh, and, um, and as we prepare uh, for recording our third album uh, later this year, uh, I um, I have the um, the lion's share of uh, songwriting duties, but uh, we're also um, what we do is we're our goal is to have you know fifteen song candidates, and from that choose the strongest ten mm-hmm. uh, for for the album. And one of those fifteen right now is is actually an instrumental written by our lead guitarist, uh, banjo player, uh, Mark Shannon. So, uh, which I think is just really, really uh, cool. Uh, and so, yeah, we, 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 um, we've, we've got more than me uh, and um, 
you know, a couple of cover candidates in the mix for this upcoming record. Well, running a band is not, it really is unlike anything else. I at least in my experience, I mean, I, I've in my day job, quote unquote day job, uh, as an attorney, I help a lot of startups and they may be in the software space or retail or, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, running a company is one thing. Managing employees is one thing, but keeping a band together and managing those personalities, um, is not, it's its own animal. It really is not. Yes. Is it right? I mean, I agree. It, you know, it's, it's, I mean, there's some, there's some things that are, are similar, uh, to, you know, some of the experiences that I, that I had in law and business. And then there are other things that are, you know, off the charts different. Um, (laughs) well, that's, and yeah, I mean, you've had such a wide distribution of different, you know, skill sets and, you know, achievement in these different areas, but to come in and, you know, keep a group of even a core of musicians, whether it's two or three or four together uh, for eight or nine years is unusual. I mean, you, people, yeah. are, people are very itinerant these days and, and you may have somebody in your group for six months and then you don't hear from them again or, uh, or, or less sometimes. So that's mm-hmm. quite, quite an achievement. Well, thank you. And, you know, and I think, you know, part of, you know, part of that longevity is, is due to, you know, the four of us really think of our, ourselves as, you know, as family now. And, you know, for the newer members of the band, you know, I have to be really mindful to make sure they don't develop a sense of being outside a clique, you mm-hmm. know, yep. and, you know, because the, you know, after almost 10 years together, there, there's almost a sense of being able to finish each other's sentences sure. <laughs> sometimes, Definitely. you know, and, you know, and so, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's something that I, you know, I think about, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there's a lot of, um, you, you know, I won't I won't say fickleness, but I guess there is some fickleness in in well in law and music. But uh, in my you know in my experience, sometimes you know even you know what a lawyer considers a sense of time and timing can be very very different <laughs> from what mm-hmm. a musician. <laughs> Yeah. thinks about in terms of you know time and and timing so uh it's it's that's been a journey too well when do you so you're going into the studio again for for your third album later this year do you know about when that's gonna when those sessions are gonna start Yes, we do. Um, we will um, return to Bear Creek Studios um, here in you know Greater Seattle uh, in um, in mid 
November, so the second week of November. And what's the plan? Are, are you going to tour after that, or there's got? I'm sure we're doing some live live performances in support of the record. Absolutely, yes. Our you know our plan uh, is to really make a you know a first class record. We um, we will be um, working with uh, the same uh, producer. Uh, uh, Trina Shoemaker, who is just fabulous, uh, and we're going to be in the same recording studio as Carnival of Miracles, Bear Creek, which for us it just works. Uh, and then from that, we will. You know, our, our target is to release the album, you know, sometime in you know late summer, early fall of of 2017 and um and then tour from you know from from that from that point forward on on that new album well we'll have to uh we'll have to work in some east coast dates somehow some way that would be uh that would be great oh absolutely we will (laughs) yeah i mean in the 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 video for for uh carnival of miracles the, the track uh, which is which is we embedded that on on the show notes on your on your page, you know the production value. Not, I mean, not just on the music, but the production value on the video is insane. I mean, it <laughs> yes. it looks as good as anything else that's that's out there. Thank you. So, everybody, I think you know we. I know that we've only kind of scratched the surface of a, of a lot of different subjects today, but. Uh, you can uh, you can you can support Paula's music uh, if you go directly to her website. It's paulaboggsband.net, and you can buy the albums directly from there. So that's probably better for you guys, I would think, since there's no yes <laughs> no middleman. So buy it that way. Don't you know? Don't uh, Apple doesn't need any more money. They're they're, they're doing fine. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> um, and. Uh, and and also, you know, for the podcast, you know, be sure to uh, to subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. And uh, if if you have any questions about what you heard today, you can always reach out to me on Twitter um, or on the podcast's Facebook page. Which, uh, if you just search for Creative Confidential, you'll find us. Uh, Paula, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I do hope we can do a part two. Uh, at some point to uh, kind of explore a couple of the of, of the career stops along the way that we thought okay well we'll we'll leave that for next time but it's it's really been a pleasure thanks so much well thank you so much Brian this has been a lot of fun and I, I look forward to the podcast yes and uh, we will be listening to a lot of Paula Boggs band uh, on our channels uh, this week so uh, thanks again and uh, we'll talk to you soon take care thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck to have Brian consult for your arts organization or to book Brian for public speaking engagements or personal coaching sessions send an email to brian at creativeconfidential.net that's b-r-y-a-n at creativeconfidential.net to get future episodes automatically subscribe to the podcast on itunes or visit us on the web at creativeconfidential.net this has been a steve mittman social media creation Creation. steve mittman social media.com